0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Grassroots Government Podcast. I'm Avery Davidson along with producer Carl Wiggers, National Affairs Coordinator for the Louisiana Farm Bureau Andy Brown and Louisiana Farm Federation lobbyist Joe Mapes. And Joe, we're going to go and start with you. Lots of uh, activity at the state capitol, but uh, have you been there this week?
1: Yes, we've been there every day this week. Uh, It's been, uh, like old Home Week, like I've always said, and we've gotten a lot done. Uh, working on the, the tort reform issue, we got eight days left. Working on rural broadband issue, and uh, you know a couple other things. The budget is uh, in, in 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 turmoil, I guess. And uh, it's been rumored that we're going to use some federal dollars to try and replace, you know, holes that the state made in the state's budget. Uh, that's probably true. But uh, you know, with the price of oil averaging down around twenty-three dollars a barrel and the budget set on fifty-three dollars a barrel, uh, we've got a lot of voodoo finance that we're going to have to do. we're going to have to pull some stuff out the hat in order to make this one work. And Avery, we were talking about a special session coming. Uh, you had heard about earlier, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, we've we've heard talk of a special session to finish up that budget, but also, what is this going to mean for torque? reform, because that's such a big issue for our our farmers and ranchers across the state.
1: Right, it is. And we're all working hard, uh, different groups. We're in a business and ag coalition to uh, work towards passing these tort reform bills. Uh, We passed House Bill 9 all the way and parked it on the House calendar. We're waiting to, uh, we're working on a a vote that, that would be one vote, one at a time, because we have, we need 53 votes to pass the bill we need 70 votes to override a gubernatorial veto. So when the bill hit the House floor, instead of having it heard in its natural order, we returned it to the calendar in order to gather the 70 votes. So we'd, we'd rather have the legislators only vote once, but we'd also rather make sure that we have the 70 votes intact before you know we move forward with the tort reform issue. And uh, I could tell you that we're there Uh, you know, I can also tell you that a tick sheet and for everybody that doesn't know what that is, that's the vote count sheet. It is a living, breathing thing. It is a very fluid thing, kind of like mercury on glass. So it doesn't, you know, if you want, if you need 70 votes, you better have 80 votes and that's factoring in you know, a certain percentage for liars. Uh, this one is going to be tough to get 80 because it's going to be very tough to just get seven. So we're very close, guys. Um, keep your fingers crossed. We're all working very hard, but it's like we're at the monster truck pools. We're right at the finish line.
0: I'm going to note that you said liars, not lawyers, right? You said liars, not lawyers on that People one. People
1: who, who fabricate the truth. Yes. 10% for liars. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned about the budget. Do you think it can be passed in what the Beatles would call eight days a week?
1: Um, in this current situation, I would say no, I don't. Because uh, tort reform is because we go right back to it's, it's putting a lot of people right in the middle of their own issues back home, you know, that they've got to consider. They come to town to uh get projects, roads, bridges, and other things, and uh, they work with the governor to do that. And in this case, the governor is on the opposite side of a lot of those people on this tort reform issue. Uh, you don't have a whole lot of bipartisan in the building right now. And I don't suspect that it's going to rear its head uh, and, and and take us to to the end here in eight days. I suspect we'll come back in a special session and deal with those items, you know, those matters itemized in a call, in a specialized call.
2: Joe, I wanted to ask you just from uh, the change in procedure and, and just a different feel in the Capitol this year on tort reform or budget alike, but really on tort reform, do you think the lack of uh, bringing people to the Capitol, letting the citizen
1: be heard of how they feel about issues? Electronic participation that that we can all do with texts and Zoom calls like we're doing right now and podcasts and emails and all that. But guess what? We all know that one-on-one personal contact means a lot. If you could have a constituent in the committee room the voting constituent whose child goes to the school that Senator's child goes to, for instance, or the, or the same church, looking them in the eye when, and, and having talked to them beforehand and say, this is the." It makes all the difference in the world. And, and uh, it's having a big effect on, it's making things a lot more difficult for uh, me, as a lobbyist, for us around there, we're having to uh, do a whole lot more work as far as putting people in touch with them, uh, you can't do it in person right now. You just can't at the Capitol.
2: Well, I figured that would be the case because we're seeing the same thing on the national side, but it's it's even uh, it has a even larger degree on the state side. Just with one vote means a little bit more in a smaller state district than versus a congressional larger district. So that makes uh, complete sense. But we've had plenty of issues uh, on the the federal side that had it not been for the current conditions uh, in our country right now I would have had a, a handful of folks on a plane with me headed to DC so I know the same goes for the state capitol and I know how fired up our membership is about tort reform and how you know we had plans to really um, to to take hold of that issue and, and bring a lot of voices to the Capitol this year so I commend you for uh, what you've been able to do and what your team is doing to to work through this climate because our biggest uh, asset as the Farm Bureau is our membership and their voice. Uh, It makes mine and your job difficult when we're just uh, another voice to be heard down there like anybody else.
1: You're 100% right, and we gotta keep talking about this about how to address it best because uh, phone calls, emails, Zoom calls, all of that it, in the long run, it, it, they're going to be a great support infrastructure for what we do, but they're never going to cut it for, uh, compared to, you know, one-on-one uh, belt, you know, belt buckle to belt buckle style lobby.
0: Yeah, as long as votes are being taken in person and people are there in a, in one giant room, you've got to have someone there that these legislators know and know is in their district otherwise no offense to you joe or sandy or billy or anyone or george you you represent people but the people are the ones who can really make a difference whenever they're there
1: that's the that's that's my influence as a lobbyist is the people and it's almost like dirty pool influence i've always said this for decades I've said it jokingly to bring a constituent to the capitol is almost like dirty pool if you really need to vote and bring them up to the senator in the capitol right before they're supposed to vote and go i need your vote look them in the eyes there's almost no known defense for that but if somebody it's almost you know it's like anonymity in a car we get in these two pound vehicles and we think we're you know nobody can notice we're there it's just not true you know but still uh That's the way it is.
0: Well, whenever it comes time to get this budget passed, I'm sure there's going to be more of a fight because anytime you have less money, you have uh, more wrangling for it and the use of federal dollars to to fill some of those holes.
1: That's right. And um, the House doesn't have its own plan. It's, you know, we're going to depend on the governor's executive budget, so they'll put it, it'll start out in the House, they'll tear it to pieces make it into something completely different and uh, throw it over to the Senate. They'll do the same. And then we'll take that horse that went into committee, you know, and came out as a camel and try to live with it uh, because that's what that's what will happen.
0: Well, we'll ride that camel over to the uh, the U.S. Capitol now. Talking about federal dollars, we're looking at a second, uh, second stimulus, if you will, that's uh, already passed the House. Andy, what do you think that's going to lead to?
2: Well, we're seeing, uh, as i said it would be, and a lot of folks have said it would be, that it was dead on arrival. So it uh, had plenty of love in the House uh, with their majority, but uh, has gotten nowhere once it left that chamber. Um, and even, even to a degree of, you know, I've spoke before about pieces of it being used for future legislation. Some of that's even calmed down because things are just so far apart. Uh, from the House majority Democrats and the Senate majority Republicans in the administration that I heard today uh, from some folks, some staff in D.C. that that we're not talking weeks, we're talking months at this point. Uh, That's how distant things are in Washington right now. So there's a lot of states and local governments, as Joe said, that are uh, trying to find dollars to make up that lost revenue and just governments and businesses alike. Everybody's pointing to D.C. looking for the the pot of gold, but uh, there's not a lot of love and, and partisanship to, to pass anything down that we can find.
0: Another place that we're looking for some federal dollars to roll is to our crawfish farmers. What's the status on that as far as getting that in included in the in the cares act and some of the disaster money that's coming out of the USDA
2: yeah the the week was quite a roller coaster for our crawfish uh, farmers and, and our issue that we've been uh, championing for them uh, it's it started with a, a real downward turn and, and a lot of hurt feelings that we saw that crawfish wasn't named in the, uh, the final rule release for this food assistance program uh, had a A number of commodities that we are excited about uh, that they were named and with the rates that they were provided, uh, that they're going to see direct assistance. But unfortunately, crawfish did not make the initial cut. And so we were a little um, uncertain about why that was. We felt like we had done as good of a job and had heard directly from some higher ups at USDA that they really appreciated and saw a lot of value in the data that we provided them through. LSU and the Ag Centers work, uh, but that, that didn't happen right out of the gate, uh, but we're, we're optimistic about uh, where we're headed with crawfish.
0: Is there, is there another route, even though it's not named, is there another route to get some, some money for crawfish farmers?
2: Yeah, so that's what we had to understand better. Um, another piece of alphabet soup, uh, my, my friends at AFBF today on a call, So we're going to have an acronym of the week because we're getting a new one every week with all of this federal uh, business that's going on. But uh, a uh, NOFA, NOFA, is a Notice of Funding Availability. Um, What that means is they have some extra uh, or they have a set aside out of the $16 billion in direct payments. Uh, They took 4% of that, which equals $637 million that they've said. This is for everybody else that didn't get named that can show a loss of five percent or greater during the first quarter of the year, so we with our crawfish folks uh, have proven that they have had a fifty percent or more loss uh, in that time frame just on price alone, not even uh, factoring in the production loss side, but uh we have to. Now, I'll go through a little extra process, and and just to kind of back up the, the conversations we had this week uh, after the release with the same USDA officials did make us feel better, and that they did still feel the same way about our data with crawfish and the work that we put in. But uh, just to be honest about it, and that's what they were with us. Uh, we just kind of got pushed to the back of the line. Uh, They had a lot of pressure on them politically from the administration to get this out um, by Memorial Day. And they they met their goal, but they couldn't do it with every single person that was affected. And that's mostly because they have a little more familiar. So there's a lot more people in the cattle business. Uh, There's a lot more public data in a lot of these other commodities. Uh, There's just certain factors that crawfish didn't have going for it, uh, but yet we still feel pretty good about our chances as we look into this NOFA process.
0: You brought up earlier about the uh, coronavirus food assistance program that officially got rolled out uh, the past week. Applications begin the day after Memorial Day, the 26th of May. How important is it for farmers and ranchers to to get their applications in as early as possible and what do they need to do
2: yeah so we're still uh, digesting everything as as best we can but there's some key points I want to make that have kind of been the the most frequently asked questions uh, I'll start first with our livestock folks um, well let me let me say this first all rates depend no matter the commodity are coming from two pots of money there's money from the cares act which is nine and a half billion and then the rest of the sixteen billion comes from the CCC, which MFP payments and other payments have come from before. They've combined those pots of money to come up with these rates per commodity. Um, Most of your price loss is going to come out of that CARES Act money, and then your production loss uh, is coming out of the CCC money. Real complicated breakdown of all that if you want to get into it, but what producers need to know is that uh, if they got named, they're going to apply by just showing what their um, their production was or what was on hand, and uh, they'll, they'll get a, a rate and a simple um, payout calculation. But if you look at it by commodity, just to answer a few questions, um, cattle folks, uh, they have a, kind of two avenues. Either you sold cows from January 15th to April 15th, and you have one payment rate, or you decided not to enter the market with your cattle, uh, and you have a different payment rate. Uh, There's some hurt feelings that uh, that payment rate for not entering the market is much lower, and folks feel like that that may have rewarded a poor business decision to to enter a bad market. But uh, USDA has very readily admitted that uh, they understand that they had to work within the money constraints that they they were given
1: yeah but andy andy didn't the didn't the cattle producers Weren't they just weren't they taking a calculated chance, saying, "Look, I think I can get a better cattle price later." That's why they didn't enter the market. Is that true? Yes,
2: that is true.
1: That's a business decision that a farmer has to make. I mean, that's what the federal law is. Those two periods, correct? Yeah, I
2: mean, that's why they're they're paying out because uh, they're assuming that the farmer will be able to recoup, or, you know, recoup some of their losses in a better market, hopefully moving forward but we, you know, we're going to see, I mean, the market has rebounded a little bit, but.
1: Uh, I think the difference in price between these two markets that you just talked about, January through April is $233 a head versus the current, which is what? $33 a head going from April to July, right? Yeah. And so, so you said some people got their feelings hurt. There's some people actually pretty angry and I've experienced it a little bit down, down at the Capitol. Uh, some legislators have been contacted.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's what I was getting at is that folks are upset that, you know, this $33 a head uh, for, for their inventory is not anywhere near the, the price of the folks that sold in a bad market. But USDA is, is admitting that they only had the money to pay on 25% of the, of the losses on these folks that didn't, didn't enter the market. So, uh hopefully.
1: Do you have any idea where they got that
2: 25%? Yeah, they've been uh transparent with all of their calculations. There's a a cost benefit analysis. It's like a 40-page PDF document that's on farmers.gov/cfap. Uh, you can click on that. It has the final rule, it has the this nofa that I've talked about, and then it has this cost benefit analysis and not just for cattle. So it has the the breakdown of the, the loss in price for all commodities that it listed. It talks about the percent. They uh, they estimated how many people would apply for a given commodity. I mean, it's, it's a full breakdown of what they expected out of this program. So.
1: But I think it's important to note that the program is for all of agriculture, too, and not just one commodity. I'm not sure that all commodities understand that, that this – CFAT money, for example, includes all agricultural commodities, not just cattle, for example.
2: Well, uh, it's for all commodities that they named, but there's still some that are sitting on the sideline, uh, like crawfish, like poultry, uh, money for our ethanol industry. There's some holes in it for sure, but uh, we we know that that's not USDA's fault. That's a lack of uh, funding that came to Congress to meet the needs of all of agriculture. Uh, all commodity groups, including myself, uh, with our crawfish data. Uh, I've, I've, We've had the head of farm service agency on calls with American Farm Bureau multiple times in this process. Uh, of all, I mean, I had been in this business a long time, but the folks that I work with who have, have said this administration, the folks at USDA, are really working with us more now than they ever have. So the thing that we're hearing from USDA is they're not pleased with what they had to decide necessarily either. I mean, they're happy to help with what they can, um, but they, you know, they're disappointed that they have to work with 16 billion when they know that the the needs out there are closer to the 100 billion mark than they are to the 10 billion mark. So that's the uh, American Farm Bureau is is pushing on. Heavy with their still farming, you heard Zippy Duval say that uh, right beside President Trump on the announcement of this um, of the food assistance program. Uh we're as, we're as tight with this administration at the American Farm Bureau level as I think any any time in the past. So, um, it's not perfect. We're not we're not trying to say it is, but uh, it's it's a little bit of help for a lot of need.
0: And Andy, what do you think it says that? American Farm Bureau President Zippy Duval was there in the room at the time of the announcement. What does that say about the organization and the the grassroots that feed it?
2: Well, if you go back and watch, uh, I think I, I take I have a lot of respect for President Duval just as a man, not just as an organizational leader, and i don't I think he's a, a fine man who does his best to be honest. And he told the story about uh, candidate Trump calling him when he won the American Farm Bureau presidential election and president Trump saying then as a candidate that he was going to be for the American farmer and that he was going to uh, work with American Farm Bureau if he was to be elected and uh, President Duval has said that that is rang abundantly true and that we appreciate that and and Trump has uh, President Trump has reciprocated by keeping uh, uh, us involved President Duval is on the the task force of reopening America. Uh, they've put a lot of value in the food supply chain, um, and just simple example like uh, PPE, face masks, and other protective equipment. Um, right behind healthcare workers, number one, uh, number two is agriculture. That our federal government has prioritized getting those things to keep our Our farmers and ranchers going strong and and having the safety that they need to do so.
0: Yeah, I got an email from you a little bit earlier today about possible shortages of PPE and suggestions on how how folks can handle some of that. Are there any concerns about now that we're doing the reopening, folks coming back to work and farmers getting workers, not just on the farm side, but on the processing side, things that they need to, to be concerned about with Folks coming back to work.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's just let's just be uh, upfront and honest about it. You're already seeing talk of, of liability and uh, of lawsuits uh, against folks who are are doing essential business. And uh, we're working uh, at the federal level to hopefully alleviate some of that liability on people who are just trying to to do the right thing and get the economy back going. But that doesn't excuse negligence. So we do want all of our listeners there to really stop and think, you know, am I doing everything I can to protect worker uh, and my employee? Am I taking the time to, to PPE and, and put it on and legally that they're not opening themselves up for a news story or a lawsuit or like.
0: Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about something that, uh, that I was discussing on, on another uh, podcast, another show, the exiles. What do you think is going to happen in, in the, I guess, near future, especially when looking at the cattle markets, we've had so many of the the processing plants shut down. We've had other interruptions in the supply chain, but not at necessarily at the farm or ranch level. So you still have this abundance, almost like you have a funneling effect. Do you think that that's going to keep us in a, in a bit of a depressed market for some time? And we may end up needing yet another tranche of some some kind of, of Disaster assistance for our farmers.
2: Well, the the people that are uh, much more involved in the the livestock industry than I am, what they tell me is the issue is more um, logistics. Um, We got, you know, it's not it's not a widget that you can change the production line in a a a day or a week even. And used to, and all your systems are made to grow cattle to. A certain size, or grow a chicken to a certain size that goes to a processor that requires it to be that size. You can't all of a sudden uh, breed a new chicken, or um, you know, develop a new cow uh, that can can grow to that that size. So yeah, there's going to be some challenges there. I think that's why our poultry folks have said that they they haven't even seen the 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 full brunt of their uh, woes yet, but. Uh, our, our industry, though, is, is smart and is, is well uh, educated and has a lot of, of folks that know how to adapt. So I think we'll do so. It's just a matter of if the market uh, and the, the reaction of folks in the market will will hurt on the demand side for a little while.
0: And what a lot of might not think about is that also translates to local economies. I mean, if farmers and ranchers aren't able to to make the money that they usually do. They're not going out in the communities and spending it. Joe, how do you think that's going to further exacerbate the the state budget?
1: Oh, yeah, no no doubt. I mean, you know, you're talking about the processing plants being down for meat, but also, you know, we've got a lot more people unemployed. They're not going to be buying as much. I mean, I've even noticed myself being a little bit more frugal, which I'm not a frugal individual, so... I think that it's this, this, this situation is definitely going to uh, put people's wallets a little bit closer to their, uh, to their chest during this deal and, and have less local revenue uh, going out because people are, are now realizing another situation like this could occur. And maybe they should have some savings. You know, I think the, the numbers on the amount of people that have $500 or less in their savings in America are something like 80%. So I think it's going to have a great, strong effect on local revenue. Uh and that's that's sad because, you know, that's about all the revenue they have, except what comes in from the state budget.
0: Yeah. I mean that's we've we've played around with our tax structure uh in the state a few times, going back to the stelly plan and even before that and getting rid of the plan. So, you know, sales taxes really do play a, a big part in what we do here in Louisiana. Well, Andy, I want to thank you for joining us again. Carl, I want to appreciate you for uh, keeping us in line, even though you've you've been quiet. I know your internet was, uh, was getting a little squirrely there for a moment. And Joe, if you could, please go ahead and take us out.
1: Well, guys, it's been a pleasure being at the table with you today because, Avery, you know when we're not at the table, where are we?
0: We're on the menu.
1: Yes, sir.